Our scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall be the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask that you would help us to behold the baby in the manger and believe in this promised one whom you've sent to be a, a savior to this world, to this dark world, to be light. We pray that you'd give us understanding to know and come to Jesus. Amen. Not sure what that sound was, but technical difficulties. Um, How many people here know of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? Anyone heard that song? All right. Probably this Christmas season is, is upon us. I think Enya even sings O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, Pentatonix has a pretty cool version. I can't do that stuff. But it's pretty cool. Um, some people think they ruin Christmas. I don't know. That's, that's up for debate. So Israel would have sung the words essentially, not, not exactly, but the sentiment of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They would have sung those words waiting for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, knowing that that Savior has already come. He already came. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're new to Christianity or you've been a Christian for most of your life, um, the one thing, I mean, about all of this, whether, you know, Israel in the past or the church in the present and future, is that God has his people constantly waiting He has us waiting. Um, And in that sense, a season of waiting, uh, Advent will always be a part of your Christian life. You'll have these seasons of of waiting for things to happen. When will God act? When will God do? When will God answer this prayer? When will he hear me? 
Um, so this word Advent, some are familiar with the word Advent, some are not. It's okay if you're not. If it's, you're like, what? I've never heard Advent. I thought that was like a Catholic thing or something like that. Like, what is that? Um, that's all right. Advent's just, it's the season of, that, that, that leads us into Christmas where we're waiting for that time of, of Jesus' birth. And um, that's part of the story. It's half the story, really. Um, the other half is, um, kind of finds its roots in, in, in the word Advent. Uh, the Latin... Sorry, Katie. <laughs> Your folder is coming. Um, <laughs> that's actually appropriate because in Greek, uh, the word for Advent uh, is parousia. Really exciting word. End times, judgment. <laughs> you know, that folder crashing down behind me. Did not plan for that. Um, yeah, so it's an exciting, exciting thing. Um, Advent celebrates both the sweet baby lying in a manger, nursing at Mary's breast, that picture, and then on this other side of things, the picture of Jesus coming on the clouds of judgment, triumphant glory. So we see these like two sides of, of what Advent is, um, the first and second comings, but we don't really like to wait all that much, do we? Um, what five-year-old or ten-year-old do you know wants to wait for Christmas morning to come? I mean, we had our children in our household, as soon as we put any presents down under that tree, it's like, oh, can we open presents now? No, I just told you five minutes ago we can't. It's not Christmas yet. How about, how about now? Can we open? Is it time yet? Like, no, it's not here yet. Like, we had this whole like, advent calendar thing. You're like waiting. Come on, like, keep waiting. But we don't like to wait. And it's not just kids. Kids aren't the only ones who don't like to wait. You know? um, <laughs> have you heard of this psychological study where you, 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 put, um, you put a cookie or you put a snack uh, on the table and you just say, um, you know, uh, if you wait six hours or eight hours, I'll give you two cookies or two snacks. How many adults do you think ate that cookie before that six hours is up? <laughs> Pretty much everybody. I mean, that's just, that's what we do. We don't want to wait. Um, we don't want to wait for our Amazon packages to arrive in the mail, right? It has to be same day shipping even. Got to come. We don't like those back orders. Not my Christmas presents, right? Um, so, so nobody likes to wait. And, and, and we see that in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season where you're getting honked at for every left turn you make. And it's just, it's crazy. Don't go to the mall right now. It's like almost Christmas. You know, it's, it's, there's this restlessness in society. And it's an impatient world, and we've forgotten how to wait. We don't want to wait because waiting is hard. Um, who wants to wait for marriage? if we doubt that we're ever going to get married or remarried. Um, when we're wronged, if somebody hurts us deeply, whether as an individual or a group, who wants to really wait for justice to happen? Right? We want justice like 10 minutes ago. We don't want to wait. Um, we don't want to wait on a timetable. And I think that what, what makes waiting so hard for us is that we don't know when the wait is going to be over. We don't know how long. And that's the hard part. But Isaiah 
proclaims to us this morning hope for people waiting. Hope for waiting people. Um, as a nation, Israel saw defeat all around them. Their kingdom was crumbling. It seemed as if God's promise had failed them. Um, and so God promises, there shall come forth, not right now, not today, maybe not tomorrow or in two weeks or several hundred years, Israel, but one day soon there shall come forth. And so God offers hope for the waiting. Um, and we're waiting too. We're waiting for God's promise. And that, that's, that's what we're going to dive into this morning, is, is just really getting into what is Advent. And, and I think this passage really hits that home for us. Um, so we're going to consider two sides of Advent this morning. First, um, waiting for Jesus to come. And then second, waiting for Jesus to come back. So that'll kind of structure our, our morning reflection. Um, waiting for him to come. So chapter 11, it, it, the context surrounds judgment. Um, God has judged Israel for their sin, and, and so he sends this big army called the Assyrians in to judge Israel and to take them into captivity. And God promises to end this captivity. Um, he's then going to judge um, other promises around it. Assyria is now going to be judged, and Israel is going to be set, set free one day. So, so there's this great imagery. Verse one: There shall come forth from a shoot. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, there's this picture of this word picture of a stump. Um, now we know, like trees, you know, you cut down a tree and you're left with what? Stump, right? Everyone's tracking. This is awesome. Good. It, it makes sense. Um, so, so God is using that as a, this picture of swinging his axe of judgment um, on Israel when he sends the Assyrians. And then he's promised to swing his axe again at the forest of Assyria. So every tree will become this barren stump. Um, and the forest is going to be chopped down. And then, and then once, so this picture is kind of bringing up this idea of evil whether in Israel, with their sin, or the Assyrians, with, um, with, with, with them, um, when all evil is vanquished and destroyed, when there's nothing left, something new appears. And so this small shoot is going to, from it, is going to grow, um, and it's going to bear fruit. Even if cut down, it's going to keep continuing. This shoot will then come out of that stump. Um, so I have a point with this. Just hang in there. Um, Jesse, so that's an important word. Jesse was King David's father in Israel's history, right? Uh, he was an ordinary shepherd, um, hardly any significance. And, and, and David was just the ruddy shepherd boy that nobody wanted. You know, he was like the tiniest son, right? It's like, here, here I'm going to display all my sons, and then here's David, and he's the puny one. Don't take him. You know, he's hiding in a corner or whatever. Um, that's David, King David. And um, Isaiah says, from the stump of Jesse, not the stump of David. So Isaiah is making a point that this Messiah figure to come isn't just going to be a son of David. He's going to be a better one. He's going to be a greater David. Um, it's kind of like saying, yeah, we're going to start over with David's Succession there a little bit, 
because uh, David wasn't even good enough. This king is going to be better. It's kind of a little subtle thing. And God's going to raise up this royal line again, but this time it will have, as he says, perfect righteousness, justice, faithfulness, peace. But this prophecy happens after some other ones, and I want to point them out really quick. First, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can bring these up. If you're taking notes, write these down. You can read them later. Um, Isaiah 7.14 and, and Isaiah 9.6. So 7.4 7, says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Isaiah 9.6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, I point these out because in the broader scope, since we're not spending a lot of time in Isaiah right now, it's just, just for this morning in, um, for reflection, Isaiah's not thinking, um, he, he has this, this thought in mind of this little boy that is going to come in the future who will be born in obscurity. Um, a, a boy with no status, no uh, great reputation. Actually, he had a status. It was a failed dynasty. It was a burned over district. It was a lost election. It was a fallen empire. That was this legacy. And this royal lineage, it's obscure and it's crooked. And Jesus was the bastard son of a poor carpenter. His mother was a virgin named Mary, and his father was God. So at least to the eyes of the community of Nazareth, he was a bastard son, an illegitimate one. Who would have believed Mary? Joseph didn't even believe her at first until an angel appeared, right? He was ready to, to call it quits. What a strange way to start a kingdom. I don't think that we, um, we usually catch how low God had to stoop to save people like all of us. If we look at the stories, you know, God doesn't choose Caesar's son. He doesn't choose Pilate's daughter. He chose Mary. He chose this ordinary family in Nazareth. No great wealth or reputation. And yet this born failure is the only one that can save us from our sins. We, we, we catch this picture that the gospel is for losers and failures. Do you see yourself as a loser? Do you see yourself as a failure? Do you see yourself in need of God's glorious grace in your brokenness and your weakness? Isaiah 11.2 says, This is the place of the Spirit's rest, resting. God chooses to dwell here in the lowest of places. He says, uh, verse, verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Shall rest. 
course, that means that the Holy Spirit's going to anoint this Messiah. As we read about the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, full of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah, Isaiah is, is describing for us this, this ideal political candidate in verse 2 um, with this language. Jesus doesn't need our planning or plotting to put him into political power. He has his own timeline. He has a different way of doing it. And with the special anointing he has, he's the only one who's capable of doing it. A lot of us think we could lead better. We might do it differently than Jesus did it. But only Jesus has the really, the know-how. And that's because, verse 3, he doesn't judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear. But I, I think because he doesn't judge by those standards, I judge by those standards when I look around and I, I listen. I look and listen. That's how I kind of observe the world, right? Not Jesus. And, and, and because he has a different way of viewing the world, he's actually able to care about the poor in ways that we don't and the oppressed. Verse 4, Jesus will put an end to the cruelty and the wrongs that we're complicit in or too complacent with to do anything about. Um, he's going to treat the poor fairly and he'll kill the, the users and the abusers and he'll protect the losers. And he can do that with perfect equity, Jesus. Because he comes not as this oppressive tyrant ruling from above, like all the powerful people, but as a servant who comes from below, in the humblest of places. He made himself to be disenfranchised and marginalized and abused and vulnerable. He made himself to be those things. Um, if, if you're waiting for God to show up in your life, don't look to the high places. Look to the low and common places. That's where God shows up. God shows up in the unlikely places. He shows up in this manger in a small town of Bethlehem. Um, as Luke describes for us in his gospel, Luke chapter 2, he says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a child and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So where was God? Was God in this glorious palace when he arrives on the scene? Was he in this great mansion? Was he in a nice delivery room so Mary could have an epidural for that delivery. Um, no. He was in this animal trough, feeding trough. No place to lay his head as an adult, we learn in the Gospels. No real place to lay his head as a babe. No crib or baby room to sleep in. No cozy sound machine to help him quietly sleep at night, right? 
Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, everyone strives after that which is above him, after honor, power, wealth, knowledge, a life of ease, and whatever is lofty and great. Love that quote. Because it describes my heart in its wickedness. And yet God is so different. How, how does he show up? God wears a diaper. When everyone's looking up, uh, I love Christmas time because it, it really brings this out. Um, Herod, right? The, all, these, all these Christmas narratives. Herod's groping for power, trying to preserve his political power. You know, kill all the infants. That's in the Bible. Um, and, and the wise men are gazing at the stars. They're the wise men. And the Pharisees are lifting their eyes up to heaven. God looks down, though. Not up. He looks down. Jesus leaves his riches to, to become a poor uh, beggar, essentially, in order to clothe, uh, clothe us with his own righteous robes. The creator of the cosmos is swaddled up in the same kind of clothing that we wear, wearing diapers like us. Ah, it's just an amazing picture. I love Christmas. Um, God doesn't just speak baby talk to us. He actually became a baby for us. I mean, the, uh, theologians call this the incarnation. And it is absolutely mind-blowing when we think about it. Um, God doesn't just become small. God made man big when he came. And he basically says, humanity matters to me so much that I am going to become truly human forever. I'm going to forever assume a true human nature so humanity can, can become divine. Man. Most religions are trying to escape the body. Shed the human body, not Christianity. God loves the body. He made it. He's the baby of Bethlehem, and he, and he stretches out his tiny little infant arms from the cradle to the grave in order to save. Unreal. God is in the manger. Frederick Beekner once wrote, um, he said, the word became flesh, ultimate mystery born with a skull you could crush one-handed. fragile. And that's true. But I think we also forget that this tiny skull simultaneously upheld the universe and he rules the cosmos while being a tiny skull that you could crush one-handed. As God, while Jesus was nursing at Mary's breasts, he was keeping the earth from flying off its axis. As he spat up milk, he was causing the sun to rise and to set. It's confounding. That's the first side of Advent. The second side of Advent is that Jesus is coming back. He's coming. And so, 
I think that, you know, like many children in this time of year, we're all looking forward to Christmas in the season of Advent, right? Christmas is coming. Um, I look forward to Christmas every year. My birthday's in November, and then it's like Christmas, and it's just, it's a great time. Um, growing up, Christmas was kind of a big deal. My, my grandmother made it uh, a big deal and very special. And, um, not sure what that was. Picking up sound waves from afar. Um, the, the fact is, though, Christmas is never coming. Some of you are like, what? No Christmas? Is this the pastor who stole Christmas? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not trying to say that. So basically, Christmas is never coming because Christmas has already come some 2,000 times now. And we're still waiting. We're still waiting. It's kind of been the same old, same old corruption and pain and suffering and grieving, gosh, especially in the holidays, grieving. And injustices keep rolling on. In this chapter of Isaiah, what's, what I love about this chapter of Isaiah is nothing of this prophecy has fully come realized yet. Like, it hasn't all happened yet. Um, we're still waiting as they were waiting. Israel was fractured and divided at the time, and Jesus, as the Messiah King, right, in the first century, when Jesus did arrive, he comes up, shows up, crucified. He's a mid-30-year-old, rejected by men. He's this Christ figure that nobody wanted. The opposite of the kind of political leader or president that we all long for and want. When he gets to the throne, and we think, Palm Sunday, he's going to go, he's going to finally get our enemies, right? That's where Jesus says, no, wait. Keep waiting. And he gets crucified. I'm tempted to use my work uh, to bring about the kingdom of God. If I work harder and longer and faster, more efficiently, God's kingdom is just going to come, right? What are you tempted to use to try to make God's kingdom come? Do you find yourself getting angry about issues? Are you trying to channel that anger to try to change things to make it happen so that God's kingdom is going to come? Or is it something else? Instead of restlessness, God calls us to slow down and wait. Wait for Jesus. He's coming. Wait. And so we're left waiting. And um, all the things that are human. Uh, I was going to talk about something else, but I think I'm, I think I'm just going to focus on something different right now. Um, playing with this waiting language. God is waiting to give us his final marching order. Um, his kindness is what's preventing him from coming in this very second. 
His kindness for you and me, his kindness for our neighbors, his kindness for our family members that we don't even like that are coming to the Christmas table this year, right? His kindness has him patiently waiting to come for second advent. Holding out that kindness so that we would invite others to come and behold that Savior, Jesus, lying in a manger. So that our neighbors, our friends, our family, we would be saved. So he's calling. He's calling for us to come. Because when he marches, Christ will come and he will judge and he will rule. And we don't know when this is going to happen, but as Isaiah focuses on, Isaiah doesn't tell us when, right? But we do know who is coming. Jesus is coming. And so Isaiah 10, uh, verse 10 says, 11:10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Once again, this, this prophet comes full circle, back to the beginning here, um, as this root or this branch, this, uh, this new lineage essentially, it's going to spring out of this barren stump. And, and he predicts here that, that the Gentiles, meaning those who are non-Jews, the heathens, the pagans, the dregs of society, the unbelievers of this earth will begin to bow down and worship King Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Um, verses 8 through 13 is what I want to read. Um, the Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. A lot of talk about the Gentiles and, and the hope. And then he finishes, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The incredible thing about Isaiah's prophecy is that all of us sitting in this room right now, or standing, rocking a baby, we are the fulfillment of this promise this ancient promise here. God is filling us with believing in this moment. It's like that, that childlike faith. Um, one of my kids, I won't say which one so you don't come up to him after the service and embarrass him, but one of my kids is convinced that the Polar Express is real. 
Um, you know, he, he was, all week he's been kind of like the main character in the Polar Express. It's an older movie, I guess, now, a couple years old. That's old, right? Um, ten minutes ago. Uh, and so, so um, at the end of the movie, though, the main character is going, I think he's holding like a clock or something like that. I don't know. I was with another kid at the time when that scene happened. But he goes, I believe, I believe. And my kid believes the Polar Express is real, you know. That's like a childlike faith. Um, right now, God is giving us hope and belief through super weak means, uh, through preaching, through this proclamation of a, a mangered baby and a crucified Lord hanging on a cross. That's God's way of creating faith in each of us as children and adults. So do you believe in the forgiveness of sins that he offers to you this morning? Will you come to this baby lying in a manger, this Lord hanging on a cross, to find forgiveness and peace with God? Will you believe? Will you come? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not like us in all of the ways that we seek vain glory and power and use those things to hurt others. We thank you that instead of being like that, that you're a God who does not go to the high places, but reaches down to us in our low places. We thank you that you humbled yourself in your son, Jesus, to become like us yet without sin, so that we might become a people whom you love and whom are forgiven. We thank you for this Christmas message. We thank you that it reminds us of our own weakness and our own frailty and our own folly. And that it's such a deep love that, that it actually can move us to begin to look outside of ourselves to others around us. To the broken, the needy, the hurting, the poor, the friends and family we don't really like. Father, who are we that you would like us, and yet you sent your son Jesus to become like us, to redeem us? We thank you. Amen.